Mark Cuban is selling the Dallas Mavericks, Jimmy Butler is monetizing his media day hairdo, and later on we'll hear from UNC field hockey legend Aaron Matson, who is one of this year's big feel-good stories. It's Thursday, November 30th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. In 1982, at the age of 24, Mark Cuban founded a software company called Microsolutions, which he sold in 1990 to CompuServe for $6 million. Five years later, he co-founded Broadcast.com, an internet radio company which was sold to Yahoo in 1999 for $5.7 billion. Side note, the year before, Yahoo turned down an offer to buy a different company called Google for the relatively small price of $1 billion. Back to Cuban. In 2000, the year after selling Broadcast.com, he bought the Dallas Mavericks for $285 million, winning a championship with them in 2011. He has also founded or bought into an enormous number of companies in industries including media, food, fashion, sports data analytics, dog food, NFTs, tattoos, truck bed swimming pools, robotics, legal services. If you can think of an industry, Mark Cuban has probably invested in it. The one he's best known for now is Cost Plus Drugs, a low-priced prescription drug company he founded last year. On Monday, Mark Cuban said that he would leave ABC's Shark Tank after one more year. He's been a mainstay of the show since 2011. On Tuesday, Cuban announced he was selling a majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks, though he will retain control of the team's basketball operations. The team is valued at $3.5 billion in the sale, more than 12 times what he paid for the team 23 years ago. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports Newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. So to the team sale of the Mavericks, what do we know so far? So there is a deal in place hoping to close by the end of the year in which Mark Cuban will be transferring majority control of the Mavericks to Miriam Adelson. This is the widow of Las Vegas Sands Corporation founder Sheldon Adelson, you know, one of the big magnets of Las Vegas casino owner. The family controls the Las Vegas Review Journal, uh, a bunch of other holdings. Uh, billion, she's a billionaire in her own right. Um also a doctor. And so she will be the majority uh, equity holder of the basketball team. Although Mark Cuban himself will be retained, he'll retain a significant majority percentage of the team. And he'll also still retain oversight of the uh, basketball operations of the Mavericks. Yeah, kind of a unique deal on that front. Usually, if you own the majority share, you you get to call the shots. So he's he's retaining shows that he still wants to obviously be involved uh, with with the team, but is but also gets a lot of cash uh, while, while he's but doing there's, it. There's a there's also a bigger vision here where the two entities are going to work together to try to build a new arena and casino complex in Dallas, and this is a really ambitious thing that they would love to have something. You know, uh, you know, he's throwing out the word Venetian. Uh, um, in terms of having a, you know, big sort of complex that, you know, has lots of different things and draws in people from all over the world. But the, but the real big asterisk at this point is Texas is not legalized gambling at this point, either casino or online sports betting. There have been measures as recently as this past spring that were making its way through the state legislature and died. And Texas's legislature meets every other year. So this uh, measure will not be picked back up again until 2025. Hopes of passage are better than, uh, but basically a big part of this deal is premised on um, uh, Cuban, 
Adelson and uh, Las Vegas Sands Corporation working together to build this whole new complex that would bring the Mavericks out of American Airlines Center, where they've been for the past 22 years, and into this grand new complex. Yeah, very interesting. And anything more we can say about Miriam Adelson or um, you know, the plans for you know this deal and beyond? It's a very interesting uh, structure again, where you have, you know, a, a very wealthy person coming in um, who is going to be immediately right up there with Steve Ballmer as one of the richest owners in the league, uh, but also will be, um, you know, in a shared situation with Mark Cuban as he retains control over the uh, basketball operations. It's a very unique structure, uh, but again, it sort of puts together again with this larger goal with the. Uh, the arena and casino complex that I spoke of, you know, a unique goal creates a unique structure. And again, there's not really a direct corollary, certainly elsewhere in the NBA and really not elsewhere in sports in terms of having this kind of, uh, you know, hybrid model of sorts. Right. Yeah. And so Mark Cuban, it's been a big week for him. He said on Monday that he'd do one more year of Shark Tank and then he's done with that. Now he's selling the Mavericks. There's been, you know, any amount of speculation. He's already downplayed the idea that he might run for president, though he's sort of, you know, in the past, he's kind of said maybe he'd be interested. Anyway, any thoughts on on what might be next for Mark Cuban? Yeah, he's got a lot of different irons in the fire, you know. Through Shark Tank and outside of Shark Tank, he's got a lot of different investments. Certainly likes the attention, you know, sort of being talked about running for president. It's actually different than <laughs> running for president. Probably um, more fun you know, just to be talked I, about. I'm being a little bit lighthearted here, but in all seriousness, he, you know, one of the particular parts of his portfolio that has become a real passion project for him is this cost plus drugs, this discount uh, um pharmacy uh, outlet that he's created, uh, literally changing lives uh through that endeavor by democratizing access to uh, uh, prescription drugs and, you know, making them much more affordable for many, many people. And you go through Mark Cuban's Twitter feed, that's really what he talks about, you know, more than really anything else, uh, you know, any other one thing out there that this has really become something that, um, again, has become a real passion project for him. And he's, you know, again, changing lives through this. So it would not surprise me at all to see him, you know, try to scale that up even more and do even more with that because, um, you know, again, he's got a lot of different irons in the fire, but, you know, for him to be this excited about this in the way that he has for quite a long time now, um, you know, it's really been something to see. Yeah, no, I, I suspect we'll, we'll be yeah hear, hearing more about that company and, and who knows what else. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Jimmy Butler is an entrepreneur and experimental hairstylist who also happens to play basketball for the Miami Heat for $45 million per year. Butler has described NBA Media Day as his Halloween. Last year, he came to Media Day with dreads, and this year he one-upped himself with his hair straightened out and swooping down almost to his shoulders and partly covering one of his eyes. I'm not sure if that description accurately gets at how visually jarring it was, but he got multiple questions about this once he was in front of the press, and he explained it like this. What's this? Yeah. This is uh, my emotional state. I'm one with my emotions, so I'm emo. I'm emo. And what started as a stunt is now a business opportunity. Butler filed a trademark for the term Emo Jimbo with the intent to sell clothing with that branding. This is not Jimmy's first foray into the business world. When the NBA was playing in a bubble in 2020 to control the spread of COVID, Butler began operating a coffee shop within the bubble where he charged players $20 per cup. 
that turned into Big Face Brand, which sells coffee, coffee makers, mugs, thermoses, and apparel. He's probably his own biggest customer. Butler apparently drinks 12 cups of coffee a day, and I thought I was addicted. Up next, I spoke to Aaron Matson, whose story we've covered here in previous episodes. Matson was probably the best field hockey player in the country in the years prior to this one, leading North Carolina to four national championships and five ACC championships. This year, she is still with the team, but in a different role. She is the 23-year-old head coach of the Tar Heels, and earlier this month, she led the team to yet another national championship. We talked about her journey and what it's like inside the world of North Carolina college sports from the coaching and administrative side, and that conversation is coming up next. All right, very excited to be joined now by Aaron Matson, head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels field hockey team. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. I know I, I'm excited for this. I love any chance to talk about Carolina and the team, so this will be fun. Yeah, well, it's, you know, now as storied team with you for, first as a player and now as a coach, you had, make sure I'm getting this right, four NCAA national championships, five ACC championships as a player, and now you're the head coach um, and you've just won a national championship there. Um was it a different feeling winning a national championship as a coach than it was as a player? Definitely. Um, in a great way. I thought I had it made, you know, celebrating in between the white lines and you're out there and the team's rushing towards you and you're the one holding the trophy. Uh, and trust me, I hope that's a feeling every student athlete is able to feel over their years. Um, but there is something phenomenal about watching it. And just seeing the happiness and tears of joy and hugs and celebrations uh, from the people you care so much about and you put so much time and energy uh, into developing as people and players. So, you know, it was, I don't know which is better. I really don't have an answer for you, but it was um, really special and really phenomenal. And was there a similar feeling of ownership of, of you know, of that, that victory? Uh, I guess kind of, but I mean, this season, uh, you know, we were only able to do it because it was, Hey, this is different. This is so unique. We have to do it together. We have to learn from each other. They, um, you know, I had to lean on them and, and go through things and, and observe and, um, they had to trust me and respect me and the rest of the staff, you know, so this was, um, like, yes, I have head coach in front of my name, but this was totally a team effort. And I could have gone out there on day one and been like, let's do it. And they could have all laughed and been like, what are you talking about? That's not possible. But they are the ones who showed up every day, you know, with good attitudes and wanting to get better and wanting to grow and respond from losses and mistakes, you know. So um, I, I guess, but we really, I don't know how to describe it in any other way than we did it together. Um, and I think the fact that you know, I obviously have a different relationship with most of them from being their roommate and teammate and doing everything with them, you know, and knowing everything about them, uh, where every coach cares so much about their player players. Um, but there was also that deeper level of foundation between our relationships. So I just wanted it so badly for them. Yeah. And did you feel like you had to do anything to sort of adjust your your relationship to some of these players who, you know, you were a teammate with, you know, maybe you're in history class or something with the year before? Um, did you feel like you had to, like, consciously take on a different role in how you related to them? I think for me, uh, that was also something that was unique, too, because they, like, I was a player coach in a way, kind of. I 
would be out in drills and they would ask me for feedback. They would ask me to watch film with them. I would talk through scenarios, you know, even as their teammate um, and as a, you know, a, a player. So I, um, they knew my expectations as a captain. They knew what my standards were when I was next to them on the field, you know? So it's not like I needed to introduce myself and say, this is what I care about. And this is, you know, how I do things and how I like to communicate. It's they, they knew me, they were very familiar with me. Um, so I, I think that was a piece of it that helped the, the nature of it. But I do think I had to be way more observant and way more um, intentional with when I was speaking up and what I was saying. Um, you know, I, I just, I think paying attention to the details all season long, yes, with our play and yes, with preparation and everything, but um, how much they're hearing my voice. What am I, when am I getting on them about something and when is it best to, you know, have someone else hold the standard and drive the standard, just trying to find that balance of um, not, forcing anything super uncomfortable because this whole situation was already unique. Um, but still being able to drive that standard and, and hold people accountable. Um, and I think the team responded great to that. We had great leaders all season long, whether they were, you know, seniors and fifth years and sixth years, or they were sophomore and freshmen, um, putting the team on their back. And beyond that relationship balancing, were there, parts of your new role that were, you know, either a rude awakening or just a surprise in terms of kind of dealing more on the administrative side um, and, you know, less as just someone who's expected to show up and play. Totally. I mean, you know, when something's working well, if the student athletes just like you said, show up, play, obviously achieve excellence in the classroom and in the community. But when they're here, Yes, you want them to be able to walk out on the field, practice, run smoothly. They're working on stuff that's going to help them and and uh, be able uh, allow them to be able to execute in in game situations. You know, they don't need to worry about the budgeting and the scheduling and the travel plans and getting the um, you know weekly schedule updated in time so they know what to expect and the conversations around scholarship money and what we have in recruiting. Like they don't need to worry about any of that. But for me, coming from being able to, you know, just show up to now being the one steering the ship. Um, it was lots of learning, lots of, um, note-taking and conversations and leaning on the Carolina coaches family around here. That's obviously been very successful in whatever sport it is. And is that something where you're tapping not just into sort of the field hockey world within Carolina, but sort of that broader, you know, storied, you know, North Carolina sports, uh, infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. I've always been someone, you know, from a young age, who's your idol? Who do, who do you look at? Look, look, uh, who do you try to emulate? And it, for me, ever since I was a kid, I never had one. I always, you know, like to steal, Hey, what is LeBron James doing? What is Kobe Bryant doing? What is Serena Williams doing? You know, I always liked how there were just people who were successful in so many different walks of life, but they were successful and they did it better than anybody ever. Um, so for me, you know, the same mindset I had as a player and growing up and everything is now, okay, it doesn't matter if, yeah, Roy Williams coached basketball and <laughs> is a legend in it itself um, there, but what can I take and apply to my program? And obviously basketball and field hockey are very different worlds, um, but there's always something you can learn from someone who's been so successful and so driven and, and, and determined. So um, for me, yeah, to have multiple different 
programs or even if it's in the academics realm or just the administrative um, realm of things, you know, to have people who are so good at what they do and just to be surrounded by people who are the best at what they do, um, you can always learn and then apply to what you're doing. The college sports landscape is changing in some pretty dramatic ways from, you know, NIL to conference realignment. Is that stuff affecting your world? Uh, Definitely not as much as basketball or football. And we sit in head coaches meetings and, you know, I don't know how those guys do it. I really don't. I, I tell, you know, even Scott Forbes with baseball, it's just a beast. And, uh, field hockey, you know, we are trying to grow the sport in America, um, this team and this program has taken pride in what we've done in the last, you know, the, the last season for, for the sport. Um, but in terms of female sports in general and field hockey, particularly, there is a long way to go, um, in terms of, you know, you see countries like the Netherlands and Argentina and what field hockey is like there. That's what we dream of. Um, but when it comes to the college landscape, um, NIL is, it's not going anywhere. It will always be a factor in athletics. It's more, uh, I think every, you know, coach is on the same mindset of how do we best management, manage it uh, for the student athletes, for each program, each school, whatever it is. Um, the changing college landscape, you know, again, I am fortunate. I am not the one in the position to have to make decisions like that because I give props to everything that has to be taken into account um, and all of the stress and, and stuff that comes with it. Uh, to the people in those positions. But at the end of the day, you know, we we take pride in being a program here at Carolina that brings home championships um, and just creating a culture and a family that you don't find in field hockey anywhere else. So uh, it's my job to, you know, make sure NIL and conference realignment and all that stuff fits well. So again, the student athletes can just go out and play, um, but that's all they need to worry about. And the rest will be my job. And last question I had for you is you replaced Karen Shelton, retired after 42 seasons. Um, you know, what does it mean to follow in her footsteps? And, and do you think, you know, just being uh, the long-term coach of, of the Carolina field hockey team is, you know, something you might aspire to be? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Coach Shelton, I mean, there's no one like her. I owe everything to that woman. Um, I've had the luxury of you know, dreaming of playing for her one day, then being recruited by her, then finally playing for her, you know, and now what better mentor to have than the woman who's done it better than anybody in our sport for 42 years, winning more national championships than any other coach in any other program, you know. So uh, at the start of this, I remember my first thought when it became real uh, was I can't believe, you know, Bubba Cunningham, our athletic director, people in important positions and Coach Shelton, have that trust in me and have that belief in me. And I just want to make her proud. I want to make Carolina proud. Um, I wouldn't have taken this job at Carolina if I didn't want to be here for a while. And I'm lucky, you know, I didn't have to go anywhere um, because I call Chapel Hill home and, and I call the people I'm surrounded with every day uh, family. So um, yeah, definitely, you know, the plan is to continue changing the game of field hockey and to continue bringing championships back home to, to Chapel Hill Um, but we have the same mindset, you know, in season as I have as a coach, one game at a time, one season at a time, uh, we can set goals and chase after them. But if we aren't present and just take care of the now and and take pride in what we do, um, it's never going to happen. So we'll just keep doing what we're doing and, and try to do it better and better each year. But, um, hopefully, you know, the dominoes will fall. 
All right, I'll leave it there. Aaron Matson, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That's it for today. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating or review while you're there. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.